electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I'll be one of my friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. It's my job. It's not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. All right, we've had a big run from the second week of June, including today. Dow gained 151 points. S&P climbed 0.40%. NASDAQ advanced 0.62%. All aboard! And a lot of this has to do with excess negativity. At the lowest two months ago, the market had fallen 20%, and tons of experts were warning about much higher oil prices, much higher interest rates, and, of course, much lower stock prices. Just when oil peaked, just when interest rates peaked, and just when stocks bottom. Now, you'd think the rampant pessimism would stop now that the market spent two months rebounding like crazy. Uh, but the bears, the bears, the bears, the bears, ah, they keep doubling down. Today, the market got hit hard at the open because we had lower oil prices and reports of weakness in China. But then we had a sharp rally off the lows as Wall Street realized that lower oil and a slowdown in China are both positives, not negatives. As I pointed out this morning on Squawk on the Street, the weak opening made no sense whatsoever. Lower oil is good for the consumer and it's anti-inflationary, which means the Fed has less reason to strangle the living daylights out of the economy. As for China, any softness there is actually fabulous in the news of inflation. Why? Because China's the marginal buyer of pretty much all raw goods. We need them to order less stuff. We need their government to tap out its resources trying to keep their drowning real estate market afloat. You want gas prices to be headed lower? You better pray the Chinese economy stays stagnant from here. So how could the market be so stupid as to sell off on that news this morning? Simple. Like every point since the bottom in mid-June, the bears just don't know how to quit. Oh, and let's not forget, unlike Europe, if the Chinese economy collapses, it won't bring our banks down with it because they don't really let us bank over there. I'm never worried about China getting so weak it causes global devastation because their authoritarian government 
can and will resuscitate the economy at gunpoint. With that in mind, let's turn to the game plan for the rest of the week. Now, normally, you know, I like to go chronologically. I like to start, say, on Monday, which is, you know, a very good place to start. Kind of like selling music. All right, but this week I'm breaking form and jumping right to Wednesday because that's when we get the Fed minutes. These minutes are huge because they're going to tell us whether the Fed's going to flatten us with endless rate hikes or if there's some feeling that they can just wait and see or just do 50 basis points six. And now that they've hit us with two triple rate whammies in a row, the latter would be very bullish. Just keep in mind, these minutes are from late July when it wasn't as obvious that inflation is peaked. But, you know, look, we know peak doesn't mean down. It just means peak. Now, before I get into the corporate news from the tail end of the earnings season, I need to address the housing start figures that come out tomorrow morning because these are very significant. We need a huge number of housing starts because some home prices are sky high. They're up huge from two years ago. And the best way to solve that is by overbuilding. Not if you're a home builder, but for everybody else. Remember, this is an inventory recession. We need to see a glut of homes to roll back the pain of exorbitant rents as they compete for the same customer. I know homebuilder confidence has already fallen hard. We got those numbers today. But we've had a two-year real estate boom, and the response to, to that is almost always overbuilding. It's what Jay Powell is counting on. Wednesday morning, we get retail sales, and that's also very, very important because we got to find out if the consumers finally stop buying willy-nilly. We also have to see the end of aggressive borrowing for goods. Where did that from Best Buy? Only way inflation can keep coming down is to stop endless buying by the consumer. That said, as usual, I think we'll get our best intel from individual companies about the buying, not this big picture macro stuff. I always like the earnings progression this week because we have Walmart and Home Depot tomorrow, followed by Target and Lowe's on Wednesday. For the longest time, Home Depot was better than Lowe's and Walmart was better than Target. Now Home Depot is better for professionals and Lowe's is better for do-it-yourselfers. To me, that means own Home Depot and avoid Lowe's simply because contractors are doing much better than the consumer side right at this point in in the cycle. As for Target versus Walmart, Target's doing better because they took a gigantic inventory charge in June and then moved on, while Walmart's taking two charges on inventory and may still be stuck. I don't know. I know this, though. I don't think I'd want to be in either one of these. We solved this dilemma of having to have some retail exposure for the travel trust by picking up Costco and Amazon instead. Now, it's been a very tough week for retail. Last week, Best Buy announced layoffs. Who knows how the now red-hot stock of Bed Bath & Beyond, up 23% today. Yes, a meme stock is going to get through this. Perhaps with a giant equity order, uh, maybe offering to sate the meme sanity. I made that term up. Meme sanity. The The stores in the mall are dismal. And everyone's being hurt by theft, except Costco, which makes it difficult to steal, and Amazon because, well, I mean, it's an e-commerce play, except for Whole Foods. Some of these retailers are doing incredible things, but aside from some exceptional situations, you got to steer clear of them at this point in the business cycle. The book says, whatever the hedge fund book says, do not buy retail going into a recession. Lots of analysts don't like TJX here, and they seem to have a real good insight into how it's doing in Europe, where they're very big. My take, perhaps wait until the off-price chain reports on Wednesday morning and then do some buying. Because TJX only makes out like a bandit whenever normal retailers need to dump their excess inventory like they're doing right now. Now, we also get to hear from Analog Devices, which is just a fantastic company. Now, uh, I really like this one. Their chips are in prime demand. I'd own it. Now, speaking of own, 
We own Cisco for the Charitable Trust, which you can follow by joining the CNBC Investing Club. We're waiting for the orders to produce some upside after last quarter's gaffing. Cisco is so cheap, and there are a ton of negative analysts, so I expect the stock to spike if they say anything good at all. And if it's bad, I'm betting that that stock holds here because of that bountiful yield. Thursday represents the best and worst of retail, and we get to hear from Kohl's, okay, that's a serial disappointer, and Estee Lauder, which is only a one-time disappointer. We need to see if Kohl's has any term whatsoever, as it could easily slip into irrelevancy. As for Estee Lauder, they dropped the ball last time uh, because of China. Now this time we need to find out if they're going to buy Tom Ford, the highest-end fashion company. It would be a big, not, not the man, but the company, okay? It would be a big change in strategy for the fragrance and skincare company. I'm not sure necessarily I like the deal, but then again, price is everything. Uh, I can't wait to hear what Applied Materials has to say Thursday night because it's a premier semiconductor capital equipment maker. We want to be sure there are customers out there trying to solve the chip shortage. Sooner or later, they'll make a bundle from the Chips Act, but I'm hoping it's sooner. We need the chips. On Friday, Deer reports. Now, Davidson today, quality research firm, put out a terrific piece of research uh, suggesting that while Deer has a full order book, maybe even more than full, they can't actually fill it because of supply chain problems. Aren't you tired of hearing that? I remain adamant that until we fix our supply chain woes, we'll be haunted by in- incessant price increases, and this inflation will continue to push the Fed in a direction that we don't want. We just want, look, remember, we don't mind the Fed raising rates. We just don't want it to keep raising rates hard and fast. Now, we also have Foot Locker, uh, which used to be really important as an indicator of how Nike is doing, but now I think Foot Locker's fallen out of favor with Nike. These days, the shoe store is just an indicator of sneaker demand, and I have no desire to buy either right now. Here's the bottom line. This week is a referendum on the consumer, but please don't make it a referendum on China, which means nothing, or oil, which is mostly about Russia and nothing more. Let's start with questions with Chris in New York. Chris. Hey, Jim. I currently own Chevron stock, and I have two questions. Where do you see oil prices going in the next 12 months, and do you think I should hold or buy additional Chevron stock. All right, we own Chevron for the Chapel Trust. Of course, you can follow how we're doing by joining the CBC Investing Club. We have the like Chevron. Uh, we have cut it when it's a little bit higher, but I will tell you this. I think oil kind of hangs right here. Makes a little stab at 100, makes a stab at 80, 80, 100, 80, 100, which is perfect for Chevron. They'll make a ton of money. All right, this week is a referendum on the consumer. But please don't make it a referendum on China, which means nothing, or oil, which is mostly about Russia, nothing more. On Man Tonight, Getty Images has soared since coming public via SPAC. So what does the company have to do to make it go even higher? I'm not sure. I'm thinking of the details. Then, with the market beginning to favor the beaten down tech stocks, are there any big names that could keep running into the rest of the year? I'm going off the charts to find out. And you called in on Boise Cascade and Chemocentrics, but I didn't know the name. So tonight I'm changing it up, turning my homework on the two to see if either provides an enticing buy opportunity. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. 
With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere, you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast, indeed.com slash mad money terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need indeed. This morning here at the New York Stock Exchange, Getty Images rang the opening bell. Now, I think it's a good time to highlight what's going on with this one. I can remember the last time the stock photo company was publicly traded before it was taken private in 2008. I always thought it was a pretty darn solid business. Everybody uses their pictures. So late last year when we learned that Getty was coming public again, this time via SPAC murder, call me intrigued. This is one of the rare SPAC stories where the murder target is a quality business. It's actually profitable. But it turns out I was not alone in liking this one because just days after Getty merged with the SPAC acquirer back in July, the stock exploded higher. That includes a monstrous 149% gain in a single day, July 29th. Imagine catching that 149% gain. Then it was followed by a 19% gain the next trading day. While it spent the next couple of weeks trading sideways, well, it tacked on another 10% today after they rang the opening bell. Now, it's certainly a stark contrast to other recent SPAC stories, isn't it? The ones that have tended to see their stocks fall apart once the deals are consummated. Instead, Getty Images caught fire. So what the heck is going on here? And what do we do with this ultra-rare, red-hot SPAC stock? Okay, first, let me just say that I, I, I like the company, even as the stock has gotten overheated. You know Getty Images as the leading global supplier of visual content. Sometimes it seems like every photo you see on the Internet was licensed from these guys. Getty Images, Getty Photo. Now, they got a massive library of content with their pictures being viewed. Get this. This is an amazing stat. More than a billion times per day. They've also got tons of video content and an army of contributors getting new stuff. These days, every business needs an online presence. If you want it, want it well, you gotta, if you want it to look good like the other guys, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to need to pay Getty. 
Now, this one's got a long history. Originally, Getty was one of the few, was really one of the first internet places, you could call it that, uh, coming public for the first time back in 1996. But unlike the other dot-coms, this thing continued to roar in the 2000s. They ended up being taken private for $2.4 billion in 2008, thanks to increased competition, also the financial crisis. But if that deal had happened a couple of years earlier, I think the price might have been closer to, say, $5 billion. Since then, this thing has been traded between private equity firms. Carlyle bought it in 2012. Then in 2018, Getty family decided to buy Carlyle's whole stake, take back control of the company. That's when co-founder Mark Getty took over as chairman, bringing in a fellow by the name of Craig Peters as CEO. Fast forward to last December, we learned Getty Images would be returning to the public markets by merging with a SPAC, C.C. Newberger Principal Holdings II. I know, a mouthful. In a deal that valued the company at $4.8 billion. Hey, look, for the next several months, the SPAC stock pretty much traded sideways, which is the, the new normal for these things. In fact, you expect these SPAC names to collapse once the deal closes, as SPAC investors can redeem their shares for their original 10 buck investment rather than taking shares in the new entity. But Getty exploded higher after its deal closed on July 22nd, rising from just under 10 bucks in the first couple of days after the close to north of $30 today. So how in the world do we explain this move? Okay, the stock exploded higher on July 29th, then spent the next couple of days roaring. Why? It all has to do with an SEC filing released after the close on July 28th. This was an 8K that included the results from the SPAC redemption process. Turns out nearly all of the SPAC investors elected to redeem their shares for $10.03 in cash, rather than taking shares in the new Getty Images. We're talking about 99.4% of the SPAC shareholder base. Normally, when you see a ton of these redemptions, it's bad news for the stock price because it means the new company doesn't get to raise as much money as they wanted. Getty still raised $360 million from a private investment and public equity offering on the side, and they sold some warrants for $500 million. But the SPAC was sitting on $830 million, and they're only getting about $5 million of that. You'd think that'd be bad news, right? But here's the thing. When 70% of your SPAC investors chose to take cash rather than shares in the new company, that hurts the company. But when 99% of them choose the cash, uh, like we saw with Getty, that sets up conditions for a massive short squeeze because there's just simply not enough stock going around. When it comes to the newly minted Getty, there are roughly 319 million shares outstanding. Not bad, right? But the vast majority of those are owned by insiders like the Getty family or strategic investors like Coke Industries, that's K-O-C-H, which took a 20% stake in this one, or SPAC sponsors who are restricted from selling for the moment. In fact, on July 28th, when we got this news, there's a good chance that the private investors who shelled out $360 million for the pipe deal hadn't even gotten their shares yet. It's P-I-P-E. That means the only shares out there were the SPAC shares. And by that point, there were only, here's the key, a half million of those left to trade. Half million. So some savvy investors saw what was going on and decided to engineer a squeeze. On July 29th, 13 million shares traded, which is a huge volume for a stock that only had a half million shares available. No wonder it jumped from $10 to $26 in a single day. And look, after taking a breather for the better part of two weeks, the squeeze is still going on. And that's how Getty rallied another 10% today. There just aren't enough sellers out there because the SPAC investors decided to take their money and run. I bet they're kicking themselves now. Look at this. 
Unfortunately, this ridiculous rally has made it tough to recommend getting here. The darn thing was valued at $4.8 billion in a SPAC merger late last year, so it's difficult to justify the stock up here with a $10.8 billion market capitalization. I expect the stock to come in as the remaining investors start to ring the register. Honestly, I think it's a shame the way this thing played out, because without the noise from this weird squeeze, I'd be pounding the table and getting. Unlike most SPAC stocks, it's a real business with real earnings. Three weeks ago, it had a reasonable valuation, but up here, I think the price is insane. Last week, Getty reported his first quarter since returning to the public markets, and the numbers were very solid, even as the guidance was somewhat mixed. However, the one analyst who covers the stock, only one, was not thrilled because he had to downgrade the stock after it had already roared. And that's my feeling, too. I think it's just prudence. Here's the bottom line. As much as I like Getty Images, the business, and I do, you have to stay away from any post-SPAC stock that explodes higher right after its merger. They, the history of these things is real ugly as they come back to earth. Getty's stock has been artificially bid up in a short squeeze because there's not enough supply. So stay away until it cools off. No offense to a great company, but if this had been an IPO, I think it'd be valued at a lower price. And while we couldn't tell exactly what it would be, it's definitely a lot lower than here. Mad Money's back after the break. Coming up, Apple, Microsoft, Tesla. The charts may tell the tale of these three mega names, and Kramer has the story next. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Now that look inflation has maybe peaked, what do we do with the high-quality tech stocks that got slammed earlier this year? but have now rebounded hard from their lows over the last couple of months. All aboard! Tonight, we're going off the charts with the help of Carolyn Broden. She is a brilliant technician whose work you can now find on ElliottWaveTrader.net or on Twitter at Queen of Fibs in order to take a closer look at three extremely high-profile names that we know you care about passionately. And those three are Apple, Microsoft, and Tesla. Apple, Microsoft, and Tesla. All three have been on a roll since mid-June, the bottom, after spending the first half of the year in purgatory. But can they keep running? Broden's always on the hunt for certain stocks, right, that satisfy certain criteria. 
She wants to see a bullish pattern of higher highs and higher lows. She watches the five-day exponential moving average and the 13-day exponential average for potential crossovers. When the five-day goes above the 13-day, then that's her favorite time to, you bet, pull the trigger. Since June, Broden spotted both these patterns in, in Apple, Tesla, and Microsoft. Can you imagine the higher highs and the higher lows? along with the five-day to 13-day moving average crossover. What incredible moments. However, they've already had some, you know, they kind of had these rallies. So the question is whether these stocks have run out of juice or is it too late? Well, we have to dig deeper. Let's start with the daily chart of, you know, my favorite. Let's start with the daily chart of Apple. Now, Broden points out that from the low on June 16th, when many other stocks bottom, by the way, Apple's rallied more than 44 bucks. Not a good sign. Why? Because it's very similar to a prior rally where Apple gained $44.67 before. Look at this. $44.67, $44.26. Pretty similar, huh? Well, you know what? Uh, Broden's always looking for patterns based on past swings in a given stock because the market tends to repeat itself. I can't tell you why, but it happens. It definitely happens here. She says, sees the last rally creating a ceiling of resistance here at 173. So again, she looks at this, she matches it with that, says that it isn't going to go further than this time, and the next thing you know, we are at a ceiling resistance. Uh, it, it's got to clear that ceiling resistance before it can continue to run. However, if the stock can rally less than a dollar from here and stay up, then Broden could easily see it running to $197.60. Remember how this works. She measures past swings in the stock, then runs them through the prism of Fibonacci ratios to find key levels where a move is likely to exhaust itself. And that's how she gets that $197 price target. I'll take it. Because, well, the trust owns it, you know. And it's not just price. Now, Broden applies the same methodology to the x-axis. That's down here, uh, which is time. She, is, she looks at the duration of past swings, runs them through the Fibonacci filters, and then identifies crucial dates. Unfortunately, Broden sees a confluence of five Fibonacci timing cycles uh, coming due between today and Friday. That's, this creates a period of time where Apple's more likely to change its trajectory. And given that its trajectory has been very strong, that's not a good thing. I'm being real upfront with you about this because you know I think you should own it, not trade it. According to Broden, these timing cycles don't always cause a reversal, but it happens often enough that it's worth watching. At this point, she's concerned about Apple in the short term. But if it can make it through this week intact, then the longer term outlook is bullish. All right, next, I want you to check out another one of your absolute favorites, which is Tesla. Here's another formerly beaten down stock that's going into overdrive since the bottom in mid-June. But like Apple, Broden, uh, Broden says Tesla's now running into some important resistance levels. Wow, it's really pretty interesting how important this week is. It needs to clear these levels before it can continue. She sees a ceiling at 942, and she sees a ceiling at 949, another ceiling between 1005 and 1017, and then a still higher ceiling around 1073. These are all based on important Fibonacci retracements. So it might not be easy for Tesla to keep climbing. However, if the stock can push through these ceilings, then Broden could see it making a run toward her long-term target of 1,412, exceeding its previous highs by more than 100 bucks. Imagine what that would do to the retail interest in this stock market. That would be incredible. Now, let's zoom in on Tesla's daily chart so you can learn more about this. Broden's short-term view is that if the stock can continue to hold above last week's lows at 838, then she could see it headed to 968 in the not-too-distant future. 
uh, up about $40 from where it's currently traded. That's like a day's work for this thing. She points out that last week's low was made right around a couple of key Fibonacci projections. So she thinks it will hold. Those are the projections right there. Remember, that's when Elon Musk sold some stock in order to maybe get ready to pay for a Twitter deal. And I think the Delaware Chancery Court will force him to do so. That's been my rap since day one. I think that's where Musk's forced selling got baked in, even if he has to do more of it than he would if he, got, if he was forced to buy this thing. I mean, Twitter. Finally, let's talk about stock that I don't talk about enough but own for the trust. Will you look at that saucer bottom? I know that's not what she's talking about, but when I do the technicals, things come into my head. Uh, take a look at the daily chart. Microsoft uh, also shifted to a bullish pattern with higher highs and, high, and higher lows. And the five-day exponential moving average crossed above the 13-day exponential moving average last month. All right? But, and this is big but, Broden points out that Microsoft is now approaching its ceiling resistance at $300. The last nice entry point you got in this one came last week when the stock pulled back to $277. That was last Tuesday. That low also coincided with a symmetry, symmetry projection, but she throws a lot at you, where a past move had exhausted itself and also an important Fibonacci level. Now, Broden says these levels often act as key levels of support or resistance. So Microsoft now has got a nice floor underneath it. This is really a crucial level. A lot of people are out of the stock because they're worried about that last quarter. Uh, but you know what? That proved to be a non-event. As you can see, the stock's also coming up against series of ceilings here, including important hurdles at the 300 levels I mentioned, and again at 305 and 310. If the stock can clear through 310, though, Broden thinks it will be much easier for Microsoft to make a run to our long-term target around, you betcha, Ski Daddy, $379. So while Apple, Microsoft, and Tesla have some hurdles to jump, Broden generally thinks these charts and thinks all three, get this, she likes them, all three should be bought, but she really prefers to buy them on weakness. However, if the weakness gets so bad that the five-day exponential moving average goes back below the 13-day, then she says all bets are off. <laughs> Bottom line, the charts is interpreted by Carolyn Broden just that Apple, Tesla, and Microsoft might flatline for a bit here or even pull back slightly as they brush up against resistance levels. But she recommends buying them into any weakness. Buy, 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 buy! And believes their charts remain long-term bullish. I think she's got a point. But I want to speak to guests. I want to speak to Barbara in Illinois. Barbara! Hi, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. I have my a pleasure. Question <clears throat> I have a question regarding the 3MD merger that's supposed to be com com completed by August 30th. It was only 15 days away. It sounds yeah. like I would have to relinquish my 3M stocks in order to get Neogen stocks. Which who is that? What is it? Uh, and there's a third twelve-page single-space document full of legal jargon. Let, let's do this, um, Barbara. I'm sorry, but let's do this. I'm not a fan of 3M stock up here. I think that there's too many question marks. I think if you sold 3M, that wouldn't be so bad. I like the company long term. My dad worked for 3M for years, but I am very concerned about the near term prospects because of a lot of litigation. That's my worry. Now let's go to Lucas in Minnesota. Lucas. Greetings, Mr. Kramer, and a big oh, hi, Lucas. midsummer booyah from the Midwest. Fantastic. I love I'm it. What's up? Be, I'm glad you guys on the morning show are giving us home gamers a way through the clutter so that we can find good businesses that are making money and maybe even throwing a, an occasional, uh, oh, shoot, sorry, an occasional well, I'm with you. good investment. 
Uh, dividend. All right. There we go. Sorry about that. Well, we that. do our best. We do our best. So what's up? Well, I'm just wondering what are we about of? Clorox. Well, you know, Clorox had a mediocre quarter, but then the stock didn't go down. And that tells me that we're closer to a bottom and you should be owning Clorox. It literally is the action of the stock. Not the company itself, because the quarter was not a good one. Right, tonight's charters, Callum Roden, suggests that Apple, Tesla, and Microsoft could face short-term pullbacks, but she thinks the charts are long-term bullish. Much for me, buddy. You called in, stumped me on a couple of stocks, so I'm turning my homework and sharing what I should have known when you called me. Then, how can inflation come down from here and continue to help the market run? I'm going to give you my take and, of course, all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. We have got a beautiful new set here at the New York Stock Exchange, but this is still the same old man money. That changed the way we do things. And that includes following up whenever I get a call about a stock that I either don't recognize or simply haven't been watching close enough to give a considered opinion. Now, we've had a couple of these homework items over the past few weeks, and it is time to catch up with them because we want to be rigorous thinkers. First, two weeks ago, Harriet in Florida, in just a, a great call because my father actually worked for this company. She asked about Boise Cascade Company. This is a new iteration. BCC for you home gamers. And I said I'd get back to her after doing more research, in part because the company had just reported that night, and we were still waiting for the quarterly conference call. I can't wing things. I can't cuff it. For those of you who don't know, Boise Cascade is a building materials company with a focus on wood products. You know, this is not some small-time outfit. It's a Fortune 500 company that generated nearly $8 billion in revenue last year. Now, Boise Cascade's got two segments. There's the larger building materials distribution business that makes up 78% of its sales, where they carry everything from wood products to siding, uh, decking, metal insulation, roofing products. Hey, Home Depot reports tomorrow. A lot of their stuff is sold there. Then the rest of the business is making wood products. Think of lumber or plywood. Again, Home Depot. Boise Cascade came public in early, in early 2013. Since then, the stock's been a tremendous long-term performer, climbing from $21 at the time of the IPO to the low 70s today. You know, I've got to tell you, we have a lot of stocks that have done near, not nearly as well as these guys. But it took ages for this one to pay off. The stock was stagnant for years until 2020, when COVID transformed the way we live, creating huge demand for housing as people fled the cities for larger places in the suburbs or the country. Of course, you want to do add-ons, too. You need these guys. And housing consumes a lot of building products, especially wood. In response, Boise Cascade stock rallied 35% in 2020, tacked on another 61% last year alone. Hey, even though the Federal Reserve has been slamming the brakes on the economy, but necessary, right? The stock's still up 3% for the year. What more can you ask? However, it did peak. It peaked in early June. Like a lot of the stocks that, uh, you know, if you take a look, it's midweek of June, you saw a big reversal in the market. It came down hard over the next couple of weeks, even as it spent the last couple of months recovering from that decline. As I see it, Boise Cascade is basically a housing play. That's why the stock was so strong last year. But I'm also worried. I'm worried about right now. These guys made fortunes as demand for housing just went nuts. And we had all kinds of shortages in building materials, including the stuff they made, especially timber. Unfortunately, we've exited the boom phase of the business cycle. Between high home prices and high mortgage rates, 
home buyers have practically disappeared. Cancellations all over the place, which is why Boise Cascade stock has become much more of a battle round. Importantly, the price of lumber has been crushed over the past few months, and I don't see it rebounding hard anytime soon. That said, this one's a little tricky. Like the home builders or the steel makers, Boise Cascade stock now trades at a comically low valuation. Remember I always tell you about PE multiples, right? This one trades at less than four times this year's earnings estimate, multiple four. Of course, that's only the case because the analysts are expecting earnings to collapse thanks to the Fed mandated slowdown that we always talk about. Now, this is what we're seeing from a ton of cyclicals right now, four times earnings, five times earnings. While Boise Cascade is currently putting up great numbers, nobody believes they can keep it up as the economy goes into a possible recession. Makes sense. And that's why when the company reported an excellent quarter two weeks ago, the stock still got pummeled, sinking 4% in a single session. Boise Cascade delivered a fabulous set of numbers, but they also made some comments about their outlook that completely freaked people out. For example, they noted that single-family housing starts were down 3% year-over-year through June, and they flat-out said, and I'm quoting here, we expect the pace of new residential construction in the second half of 2022 to slow due to home affordability constraints and a weakening economy, end quote. They also said they expect commodity prices to be, quote, volatile in response to economic uncertainties, end quote. Now, I've said this before, but when you hear that word volatile, volatile is a word you never want to hear on a conference call. Because it's how executives signal that prices are going down. Sell, 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 sell. Not great. And if it were still late June, I'd tell you that the housing slowdown was already baked into Boise Cascade share price. In June, the market was trading like we were headed for a severe recession. Since then, though, Wall Street's gotten a little more positive. We now know the Fed has made real progress fighting inflation, which means they might not have to squeeze the living daylights out of the economy to get the situation under control. Although that's good news for Boise Cascade, the stock, the fact is, look, the stock just rebounded from 55 to 71 in less than two months. It's only down 14 bucks from its highs here. It's trading like we're headed for a mild recession. At the end of the day, Boise Cascade's a very well-run company with a great balance sheet and a terrific buyback. But this is a housing play, and it's very hard to own anything housing-related at this point in the business cycle, even though I think this one turned out to be much better than I thought. I think housing is going to get worse before it gets better. Even if you want to stick your neck out... I prefer something like Best of Breed Lunar or Toll Brothers. Or if you really want, come on, you want lumber, Warehouser is good enough for us, right? It's, it, that's a darn good company. Next up, last Thursday, Karen in New York called me about Chemocentrics, CCXI. I said to take a closer look. Now, this is a biotech company that recently had a huge move, more than doubling on a single day on August 4th. What happened? Takeover bid, Amgen, the biotech colossus. Announced it was buying Chemocentric for $52 per share, which values the company at $3.7 billion. It's a lot of money. Now, I make a point of never recommending the stocks of companies that are being acquired unless there's something unusual going on, like a bidding war that could up the price. Chemocentric is at $50.81 right now. So the best case scenario is you make a buck to change if the deal goes through and you lose a fortune if something goes wrong. We don't play that game. Sell, 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 sell. However, I did want to circle back to this one because I think it tells you a lot about what's happening in biotech. Amgen was the third best performer in the Dow Jones Industrial Average during the first half, which is amazing because it's not that great a company. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say it. It, it, It's had better times in its past than now. I use a lot of I use their stuff. So I take full disclosure. I take Amovig, which is one of their important uh, anti-migraine drugs. 
but they're facing some major patent expirations from 2025 to 2030. I've said the company should make some acquisitions to bulk out the pipeline. And now it looks like that's exactly what they're doing with this chemocentrics. Amgen's getting some exposure to autoimmune diseases, inflammatory disorders, cancer, ultra-rare orphan diseases. Right now, chemocentrics only has one drug on the market, which is an adjunctive treatment for a certain kind of blood vessel inflammation. While it's only just launched, Amgen sounds very bullish about its prospects as an anti-inflammatory drug. Beyond that, Chemocentrics has a handful of phase one or phase two drug candidates focused on rare diseases, immuno-oncology and autoimmune diseases, including ulcerative colitis. And that's the big one. Again, it's too late to buy Chemocentrics here. We're not in the arbitrage business. But I think this deal is good news for the acquirer for Amgen. And I'd love to see them do a series of takeovers like this one. It'll just make them into a much better company. Bottom line, don't be tempted by the seemingly cheap Boise Cascade. And it is cheap. If the economy stays strong, but it's a housing play, and housing's getting bad. And as for chemocentrics, just keep your bat on your shoulder, admit that you missed it, and move on. Bad money's back after the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Tell the little kids what I'm going to start with. How about we start with Ethric Howdy, in California? Ethric. Howdy, Ethric. How's it going? Hey. All right, buddy. How you doing? Yeah, hello, hello. Yeah, you got I'm me. Great. You got I was Kramer. wondering about canoe. Yes, hello. Oh, can, canoe? Canoe, no canoe, or canoe. No, we're going to stay away from that. We are not recommending any of the electric vehicle stocks that continue to lose money hand over fist. They're not for us. No, no, no way, no how. Now we're going to Zachary in New York. Zachary. Hi, Jim. As a small cap value play, I'm curious as to what you think about Energizer Holdings. I think it's too cheap to ignore. I don't know why everyone hates it and punishes it. It makes me sad. I think it's good. I say we're be a buyer. Buy, buy, buy. All right, we're not done. Actually, we're just getting started. Let's go to Todd in Florida. Todd. Booyah, Professor Kramer. Appreciate all the work yeah. you share with us. Oh, thanks, Chief. What's up? No, nothing much, um, Captain Kramer. So I've got a small tech cap company that has been on a slippery slope since its 52-week highs in November. Reported okay. Q2 revenue that is 78% up year over year, yet gets very little love from the street, if any love at all. So the company is baritone. Yeah, it's losing money like, you know, like water. And we're against that. We actually are in favor of stocks that do well. So we're going to say no. It's a lot of those stocks are bottoming, but I have no edge on it whatsoever. Now we're going to Dean in Washington. Dean. Jim, thank you for the advice on DVN. It has been tasty. Yeah, it is tasty. It's not done. It's not done. It's down three earlier this morning, but people were wrong about it. How can I help? Stop that! Stop it! What's up? So, CBR Energy, they also make uh, fertilizer for the American farmer. I like the fertilizer business more than I like the refining business. It's turned up. I think you've got a winner. I got to do a whole section about it. I'm liking that stuff very much. I'm trying to make it clear. I don't know if I made it clear. All right, we're going to go. We're going to go to Matthew in North. 
North Dakota, Matthew. Hey, Kramer, how you doing? I'm actually in Charlotte buying all the new car I can find. Well, there you go. I think that makes sense. I like the Panthers because they're run by Dave Pepper, although I'm mad at him. What's up? I got... My question is, why do you hate Boeing so much, man? I was my whistle. No, 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 no. I, what I hate is, what I hate are companies that, that screw up routinely. Now, Boeing seems to have gotten that under control, and that's very positive. So I think that Boeing, like the next dip, actually is good. But I got tired of the, of the mistakes. Ready? And that, ladies and the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, do you want the good news first or the bad news? Today's edition of Inflation Saga has a little of each. Next. Jim Kramer, the diehard of the dollar. Hey, Jimmy, love the show. My five-year-old grandson loves to watch your show. I have to thank you for making us money when it's there to be made. Our world is a better place with you in it. been noodling on this one. How can this four-week rally keep going? Now, the recent run is all about peak inflation. So for stocks to keep on trucking, inflation has to keep cooling off. That means a handful of different things need to happen. First, we have to see the auto companies produce enough cars to meet demand. I used to think the automakers were just inefficient. But the more I dig into it, the more I realize cars have gotten too complex and the transition to electric vehicles will only make them worse. It's terrific to hear that our government is finally subsidizing domestic semiconductor plants. You know I was in favor of that because the chip shortage has crushed the auto industry. But it's going to take years before those facilities kick in. For now, the auto industry's hostage to cheap chips made in Taiwan, Japan, South Korea that we can't get enough of, and China wants them too. We're not going to switch back to less complicated cars and trucks, although I've been thinking that they should be surprisingly popular. Just replace all those touch screens with knobs and dials. They call it retro. Sadly, that's not going to happen which means the only way to fix the car shortage is to actually stifle demand. And that's exactly what the Federal Reserve is doing. I hate that that's how it's going to happen, but it has to happen. Second necessity to solve inflation, more homes. we got to have more homes. See, what's happened is the home builders, they've got to overbuild. I mean, I know that's terrible to wish Doug Yearly had told brothers he has to do the wrong thing, but that would bring the price of housing back down. They just might do that because the real estate market got so hot over the last couple of years that they're probably building like mad in response. Without more housing supply, we're going to have to see those prices come back down by brute force, meaning a huge Fed-mandated rise in mortgage rates that makes housing unaffordable and only brings prices down. Those rates are already up big from six months ago, but not enough to create a true housing glut that reverberates to even the landlords who keep raising rents. I do think a housing glut is a real possibility come the fall. Hey, look, I checked mortgage rates today. I got 5.6. That's a lot. I got 3.6 just a couple months ago. Now, this hasn't happened yet, but I think while I'm early in touting this theory, I think that housing is going to cool off. Third ingredient in cooling down inflation, oil needs to stay low. Now, I like the odds in this one. We have Russia pumping like mad to finance what incredibly feels like a failed war. We have China not using as much oil because their economy is stalled. We have India sated. We have the U.S. pumping 12 million barrels per day with another 1 million coming out of strategic petroleum reserve. Even without demand destruction, I think oil would stay down. Throw in a Fed-mandated slowdown, and I bet it goes even lower. 80 bucks, maybe a little under, maybe not. If we had more refining capacity, we'd have even lower gasoline prices. But who wants to build an expensive refinery when we're told that the future of this nation is in electric vehicles? 
Fourth component, we need food lower. Now, this one's already going in the right direction. You may not feel like we're in the supermarket like I was this weekend. Most agricultural commodities are down huge from their highs. I wouldn't be surprised to see price wars at the supermarket as the big grocery chains push their cheaper private label products. Hey, by the way, those are made for, by Treehouse. The store brands carry much higher margins than nationally branded merchandise. That trade down is for real. Started already, and it's going to help keep costs under control. I am very optimistic about food inflation over the next three months. Hey, by the way, we'll listen to Deer on Friday, and we'll hear what they have to say. Fifth is wages, and this one's a real toughie. If you take a look at the stock of ADP, the big payroll processor, it's telling you that hiring is incredibly strong. Any company connected to a greener economy is hiring like that. Even the IRS is hiring tens of thousands of new employees over the next decade, taking them away from the private sector. Sadly, the only way to stop wage inflation is for the Fed to lower the boom on us with higher rates. I see no way around that one. And then the last is the supply chain, okay? Now, this is a problem because businesses are constantly ordering the same thing at once, either for the remote work theme or electric vehicles, or just because it's tough to find components when the world's second largest economy, China, is plagued by COVID shutdowns. The economy needs to slow down so that we get a breather to fix the supply chain mess, and the Fed is trying to give it to us. You slow the economy down, the supply chain catches up and brings prices down. It's a one-two punch that we need really badly. So you put it all together and you can see that while we're at peak inflation, we still need the Fed to stay tough to get us to a point where we're seeing deflation. That's the bad news. The good news is the Fed totally gets everything I said. And I think they can engineer a soft landing because they've already made great strides here. Plus, the job market's so strong, it can take a lot of damage without causing mass unemployment. The Fed's gotten us to peak inflation. Now it has to take us to the floor. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.